I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. In this episode, I continue with conversations I struck up with higher education leaders during a November trip to Nashville. In my previous podcast episode, I spoke with David Mee at Belmont University. In this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by Doug Christiansen, the Vice President of University Enrollment and Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at Vanderbilt. Doug has spent 30 years in higher education leadership, the last 12 in his capacity at Vanderbilt. Much has changed in the world of college admissions over the course of his career, and especially in the last decade and a half. This set of statistics from Vanderbilt tells the tale. In just the 12 admission cycles that Doug has overseen, Vanderbilt's application numbers have increased 182%, from 12,000 in 2006 to over 34,000 in 2018. During that same time, Vanderbilt's acceptance rate has dropped from 33% in 2006 to 9% last year. Vanderbilt's statistics are not unique. They are replicated at other the most selective colleges and universities across the country. The reasons for this shift in number of applications and selectivity are varied, but from my perspective anyway, one consequence has been clear, an increase in the student and parental stress associated with the college admissions process. This stress and anxiety has itself had negative consequences on preparatory programs like parishes, as a hyperfixation on outcomes, grades, and college placement as the primary purpose of the learning experience has made that learning experience feel more transactional and, at times, less engaging. Doug and I exchanged thoughts on this phenomenon as well as a series of other topics. His insights are most definitely grounded in deep experience. For, In addition to his work at Vanderbilt, Doug has served recently for four years as the chair of the college board, the organization which produces standardized tests like the SAT ACT, and AP. I'm sure you will find this episode one worthy of reflection. Doug Christiansen, thank you so much for uh, letting me come to Vanderbilt and spend mm-hmm. some time in, in your office mm-hmm. as the uh, Vice Provost for University Enrollment Affairs and the Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid. You've got a 30-year career across three different <laughs> institutions. Correct. Uh, you're also the chair of the college board, which we'll get into a little bit in this podcast. So you're uh, a source of incredible wisdom on uh, not just Vanderbilt, but really where Vanderbilt sits into the uh, evolving world of higher education, to higher education admissions, which has changed a lot in the last generation, uh, and teaching and learning at places like Parrish. So thanks for having me. You bet. Very glad to, glad to be with you. So let's talk a little bit about Vanderbilt. Uh, I always like to start with our uh, friends mm-hmm. at universities and colleges just on some quick facts and figures mm-hmm. for folks that may not know. You've got a huge mm-hmm. national reputation, but uh, unpack for our uh, listeners uh, just some of the key facts of enrollment, number of colleges, and those types of things that are pertinent to an understanding of Vanderbilt. So at Vanderbilt, we have 10 um, colleges and schools for undergraduate, mm-hmm. which would be the most pertinent for this audience right. and for your group. So we have um, the College of Education, um, Peabody, mm-hmm. we have Engineering, <clears throat> we have the Blair School of Music, and the Arts and Science, um, Arts and Sciences. And, and that's the, your largest of yes. the colleges, the Arts and Sciences. Here. Yes, of the four. And so essentially, roughly, we're going to bring in about 1,000 
10 in arts and science each year. We're going to bring in 200 in Peabody, mm -hmm. 325 in engineering, and about 60 in Blair. Mm -hmm. That equals 1,600, and our goal is 1,600. And each year we have to be very careful because um, one thing that's very unique about Vanderbilt is um, we require students to live on campus all four years. Mm -hmm. um, and so we feel that the education is not a collection of courses that by far the experience here is your coursework, how then it's discussed outside of the classroom mm -hmm. in environments where um, it's conducive to having you know, differences and debate and together. Um, and so that 1600, if I'm over 100, it's a problem for four years, not one year. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're very, um, this past year in the entering class that came in, our goal was 1600 and we we're at 1602. Yep. Um, and so we um, really watched that closely. Um, we had this year 34,000 applicants, just over 34,000. And from about 2006, to give some perspective, that's up from 12,008. Um, and there's really no difference in what we've done as far as we, we were one of the kind of second adopters of the Common App mm -hmm. about 10 years in. So we've been with Common App for decades. Um, and now we also take coalition, but it really was um, the change, I think, really was saying Vanderbilt had something to offer. Mm -hmm. We really believe in the marketplace and um, in the education space. We really have a differentiated experience here, mm -hmm. and we needed to tell our story better. Mm -hmm. And so I was brought in, and we've kind of taken that from there and really been able to talk about what are the key elements at Vanderbilt. And for me, some of the key things that we would talk about first was the development and opening of our commons. It's where all of our freshmen live together in the same area, and they have faculty that live in each of the halls, as well as their resident advisors and the student advisors. And, and I should say the faculty and his or her family, if they have a family. Um, and it's very much trying to create an atmosphere of kind of intellectual exchange um, that's not just a place where you sleep, it's an extenuation or continuation, I should say, of your classroom experience. Mm -hmm. So that was probably one of the things that really started to change and then this requirement that has always been, or I shouldn't say always, in the past near um, history that students are required to live on campus mm -hmm. all four years. Another interesting thing that changed that we worked on was in 2007, end of 2006, all the way through 2007, we announced it in 2008, was our program called Opportunity Vanderbilt. And that is a, a, a financial aid program where we always had a good aid program before, but this is where we are 100% um, need blind, we meet full demonstrated need, all with gift and no loan, and we have no income caps. And so the purpose of that real change was is to say, if a student is prepared here to be admitted, they should not not choose us because then they can't afford it. That is just simply not <clears throat> a value that we would believe in. So essentially what we ended up doing is buying out the last part of all the loan mm -hmm. because it always we had always had a good aid program. So let me give you an example that might be interesting to your families. Um, if you think of a barbell, and they can't see this, I know, on the <laughs> podcast, and I should be working out, <laughs> but then you kind of think on one side, Absolutely. it's bent over here, there is kind of for the lowest income family, and there were lots of programs for students mm -hmm. and families like that. And then obviously there was program over here of the people that could pay mm -hmm. the full amount, 
But we were starting to see nationally, really a public policy question, um, primarily in the uh, private, um, leading privates, but also in the leading flagships, that all of a sudden now kind of that um, low, low middle income family we weren't an option. Absolutely. Um, We're seeing the same thing in private independent schools, and it's those middle-income families who you might say, well, what is that number? Well, we know what that number is at Parrish. That's north of $125,000, right? right? So, uh, for example, those are families right now increasingly that, that number and above that we're seeing more financial aid applications from, right? Exactly. So Opportunity Vanderbilt allows you to work with those families right. as well, which is a, a huge benefit. So you take that family that we're talking about, I'm gonna give you an example of a family that makes 200,000. So you've got a family that makes 200,000, it's a family of four and they have two students. One is at Vanderbilt and one's at Duke. They have to write a check for $140,000. If you equalize all of the tax structures in the US, um, you equalize Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid that you pay into, <coughs> And that difference um, from the 140 to about 170. So once all that is paid for, your taxes and everything, you're at a family income of disposable income of about 30,000. That's just not doable. And so in our aid program, we've been able to show we list online and in all of our pamphlet or financial aid pamphlets, I should say, we talk about how many students are here from zero to 39,000, 39 to 49,000. It goes all the way up to plus 200,000. We show the number of awards, the average age, and the range of the um, aid. Because financial aid, we need people to understand whether it's low income, middle income, um, and for perhaps even high income, depending on if you have five children or whatever, that aid is not a handout program. Mm -hmm. It is a, a program that has to be. It's an enrollment management yes. tool. But at the end of the day, the reason it is so important is we want different voices right. and different experiences yep. here. Yep. So that was kind of, the, in my estimation, a second piece that really has changed moving these the application. Sure. And then I think the, so it's kind of the reach, um, the um, pipeline development, mm -hmm. it was then really looking at um, the commons and now looking at um, our A program that we've had around now. So, oh, we announced it in eight. And so the first students get, receiving it was a nine. And then you can just see how that has come. We've dropped people from the number of students taking out loans has gone from about 1,600, just shy of 1,600, to um, under 400. Yeah. Um, and so those would be the three things. Then as I think what we've further done <coughs> now is having that is really looked at our new strategic plan that's been out for several years now. So it's funny when I say new. Yeah. I guess it's so not it's quite 2014. New I saw. Yeah, I read. But, I read um, through it before I came but to see it. But really looking at as we think about the education mm -hmm. and the education of a student, that it's again as I mentioned earlier, it's not a collection of courses. Mm -hmm. That's a component. Mm -hmm. But it is this residential experience. Mm -hmm. It is the. Um, as we think about our immersion new program, it's a requirement for mm -hmm. graduation. And that, let me briefly explain that. That's really a student coming here will work with a faculty member. They will have to design a product or a, um, a program, a new, something they want to study. Mm -hmm. They will have to execute mm -hmm. it and then they'll have to have a deliverable. And is that an option or is that a requirement? requirement. It's a requirement for every, every Vanderbilt that student in the, four, in the four undergraduate yep. uh, mm -hmm. colleges? Yes. And so it could be anything from 
And what it really is, almost if you kind of think of a, a master's thesis, mm -hmm. but yet at a different level, but it's really helping a student think through the, the beginning of a mm -hmm. project, the execution, and then the deliverable, the analysis that takes place across that whole continuum, learning to do some independent work mm -hmm. while working with the faculty member in the immersion office. But I think at the end, as we think of an employer um, oh, out years, that even if I, let's say I'm in engineering, but I wanted to do my immersive project because I wanted to understand um, the Labor Party in England. Mm -hmm. Well, I might go outside of engineering and work with a political science um, professor or a history professor, someone that had knowledge of the Labor Party, work, what was I going to study? I would go um, to um, England, Parliament, understand it, and then write something when I came back out of this whole thing. Right. So when I'm even with an employer, well, and it will be marked on the transcript, the immersive experience may be in your discipline, but it doesn't have to be, but it's really the ability of trying to create the ability for students to synthesize, have analysis, because we live in a world today where we can find any fact and mm -hmm. figure by picking up the phone. Yep. What we really need is how to take all those facts and figures and make sense out of them and know what should I incorporate, what I shouldn't incorporate. So it's the, the days of rote memorization just don't help us anymore For because sure. we can do this. And we do that through our strategic program, Signature Oversight, Economy, Global Studies, and Leadership Institute. But our entire curriculum right now is moving more toward performance-based evidence of mastery, mm -hmm. more integration of discipline, uh, more fluidity of movement for students based on their ability to demonstrate competency and mastery, some of the things that we that we spoke about. And I know in addition to the Immersion uh, Vanderbilt program that you that you just mentioned, part of that strategic plan too is looking at new methods for teaching and the integration of technology, right? Mm -hmm. This notion that uh, there will be some hybrid classes, some face-to-face, -face, that there will be digital uh, delivery of content. Mm -hmm. uh, so you guys are really uh, really trying to stake a leadership role and in that and as I, well. And I think that's a, a good observation. Is when And when you think about, we also have a new thing with our strategic plan called um, there our university courses. But it gets, I think, to the point you're meaning is we might take on a topic, but that topic, and it might be... Um, let's just pick something, the, the um, environment. Mm -hmm. You know, let's just say the course on the environment mm -hmm. of today. Mm -hmm. Instead of thinking about it just from a scientific way, right. we need to think it from a scientific manner, a sociological, mm -hmm. um, an economic. Right. And so it's pulling these disciplines across. And, and, and higher ed is not good at that. <laughs> Very siloed. <laughs> um, Most of our schools are. It's and, difficult and to break really those down. really part of that strategic yeah. plan is that we would be doing a disservice to the student if they leave and they thought the course was only based rooted in one discipline. Right. Now there might be a higher level of that, but you know, you could go as far on this environment piece and talk about, like I said, a sociological piece, a scientific piece, a um, economic piece, but then how do we write about it? Mm -hmm. How do we tell the story? Yep. So it brings in the humanities yep. um, and what can we learn from a historical perspective? And so I think really pulling this university courses cross-disciplinary into much more of the mainstream is really focusing where a student needs to learn to think today, in my estimation, in Vanderbilt, to be prepared for the workforce yep. 10 and 15 years from now and 20 when 
you will not be able to just understand one component. Yep. But as I mentioned earlier, there's so much information on each one of those. How do I synthesize that? Yeah, and there's some universities doing some incredible work in this regard. Uh, Georgia Tech just released their Commission on Next Generation of Education mm -hmm. report and, and really looking at the arc of, of the, of the uh, post-high school learning experience mm -hmm. being lifelong, right? Yes. And that the dimensions of how teaching and learning is, is going to look on the Georgia Tech campus by 2040 uh, is going to be dramatically different. Arizona State, Purdue, you can go down the list mm -hmm. of folks that are really pushing the boundaries here. We call it a parish reimagine. You know, we, we, <laughs> right, we think that we think that the apparatus of school, how we deliver curriculum, how we use time, yeah. how we assess mastery, and 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 then students demonstrate mm -hmm. it, uh, all fundamentally need a rethinking because the world is complex and global. It's just more mm -hmm. complicated. You need a, a different set of skills to take into that world. And secondly, a little bit to your point on the on, on the college admissions landscape, um, learning has become so transactional, and we think too anxiety bound and too joyless uh, at the college preparatory level. And we think by infusing some of the very features you've just discussed, uh, interdisciplinarily, uh, big questions. Right, that are explored in depth mm -hmm. rather than a superficial run through content mm -hmm. uh, that the learning is going to uh, for our, uh, our students just be more engaging and joyful uh, and we think healthier. So you know, kind of capstoning this little uh, overview of, of Vanderbilt and the changes you've looked at through the academic strategic plan, if you were to, if you were to think about the, the Vanderbilt experience in 2035 when the youngest parish student might be hitting the campus here, you've intimated what some of the features might be but can you describe in any other details or things mm -hmm. that your senior team here is talking about mm -hmm. what, what it might look like? Will, will students come here for four years from 18 to 22? Will that be all of your students or some? Uh, will, they mm -hmm. take, will, they, will they have majors? Jeff Saligno and others are saying, you know, the college major may, may need to, to go away to some of this interdisciplinary. Like, what do, you, what do you think two or three of the features of a Vanderbilt experience might be then? I think that one thing we are really... Um, believe from a deep pedagogical uh, pedagogical manner is really thinking about the how students learn, the environments they learn in, and so for example we're doing a huge change in all of our residential halls. So we have started with um, the Commons, we opened Warren and Moore, we now um, open Ingram, and if you go down um, when you leave all four of our what's called the towers are being brought down and they've started the construction on the end mm. and it is a belief that um, <clears throat> the classroom experience the full immersive experience mm -hmm. of a period of time and that and so we would be probably going a little against the grain mm -hmm. if you look at um, nationally mm -hmm really moving to like, oh, we should have three-year degrees, mm -hmm, it's just mm -hmm. a collection of courses, yep. Georgetown's looking it at needs that, to be right? more effective, mm -hmm. um, and I think we're staking that, no, um, and we need a period of time to have deep ability to think deeper, mm -hmm. analyze, so that you are not just thinking about superficial content, mm -hmm. you've dug deeper, and we think that can't happen in a class Just in alone. the classroom, right. And so the residence halls, you know, there's always a criticism, we don't have this, but like the, the lazy river and yeah. all those yeah. things. This is not for that. Yeah. These are, they'll be re residence halls, right. I mean, they're really nice, but it is a belief that deep learning mm -hmm. will happen that way, and so, so I think that you might look in 30 years, mm -hmm. and you might have schools like Vanderbilt, we might be more of a niche, but yet I think in some ways maybe even become 
more selective yeah. because more will have moved much more to, and particularly state institutions being forced by state um, funding, funding yeah. that, they're, that it's all about get the degree, get the course, and get in and get out. Yeah. And, and I think from a parish model, and, and you still have K through 12, mm -hmm. of course, but you're, you're trying to think differently. Mm -hmm. You're trying to think deeper about learning. Yep. You're not trying to just click off the buckets and here's the diploma. Well, and I think around some of the cost pressures that Vanderbilt obviously been very creative in trying to, to work around. Yeah, I, I really feel, and I'm just one, one person, I feel like not, a, not a hundred, all 100% of our 115 graduates are going to go to a four-year brick-and-mortar college immediately after Parrish uh, it, within the next generation, we've changed our college counseling office's title to the Center for College and Life Planning mm -hmm. because you know there's this emergent set of pathways through badging and credentialing and gap years uh, or community college experiences to a four-year experience that I think are opening up with the notion that there is there is no 18-year-old that leaves parish who will be able to cease learning from 18 to you know, call it 75 when a work life experience ends because the, the, uh, the, the velocity of change is such that it's going to require that. And I think where colleges are getting, um, I think, really creative is thinking about servicing their alumni as continued learners, of course. right, at 35 and 45 and 55 and bringing them back into the, uh, bringing them back into the fold. So that's an interesting thought about that. Maybe take your hat off. Uh, your Vanderbilt hat off for just a moment and, and, and sort of as, as the expert in, in higher education and admissions that you are, but circle back to Vanderbilt's admissions numbers is just one indicator of this broader trend, right? So you've seen a 182% increase in your applications in just 12 years. Correct. You've seen your acceptance rate go from 33% in 2006 to uh, under 10% today. Correct. That's been very much the uh, trajectory for mm -hmm. most of the uh, selective schools. Uh, my my opinion, which I'd love your reaction to, not as uh, in your role here at Vanderbilt, right. but just in your role around the admissions, is that all those uh, uh, realities have created for the parents that, uh, and the students that live and work and learn in, in our community of parish, this ratcheting up of anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, Mitch, your colleagues, as you talk about... Um, you know, whether it's the Common App or all these other inflows, great programming that you have here that have driven demand, some of the other uh, perhaps less noble uh, elements that have led to the rise in admissions, the U.S. News and World Report list, for example, schools essentially uh, sending uh, uh, either electronically or in paper uh, interest, uh, interest prevailing uh, mailings to students who've scored at a particular level on ACTs mm -hmm. or SATs. Uh, do you all worry at all about the, um, the, the anxiety that has been produced by this narrowing of the acceptance rates to schools like, uh, well, like yours? Of course, of course. Mm -hmm. And I think a couple of things, being a father myself and two sons have, that have gone through this process, mm -hmm. Um, and my wife and I, we've kind of lived on both sides of the fence. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, I think today, um, I, I hope I'm a better admissions um, officer by having that experience um, to see. Um, but I would say, yes, I think fundamentally the very top schools. So let me give you an example. I was just in London with the University of Chicago, Northwestern, Columbia, University of Southern California, Vanderbilt, and one more school I'm forgetting. Um, oh, and Boston University. And all highly, highly ranked schools, you know, the majority of them in the top 15. Right. 
fact, all of them but one. Yep. And um, <clears throat> our whole consortium thing as we traveled in London or in England was the UK is we didn't talk about Vanderbilt or the, any of the schools. Oh, I mean, yeah. obviously people know sure. that we're from there. Sure. But it was trying to say, if you choose to come to the United States, we are very fortunate and we have almost 3,000. And we talked about the different ways to come and that you cannot think the only place to go is the top 20 schools right. based on US News right. or the Shanghai Times or right. whatever. Never. Yeah. And, um, and then I also lead a delegation every year to China. And we go to the third tier um, cities in China and we, and we do the same thing. It's all about how to think through the admissions process um, but it's not selling Vanderbilt. Yeah. Um, and we do this in the US as well in our consortium travel. And so one is we have to take responsibility on the higher ed side to make sure that we talk about higher education as a public good. It helps raise the bar for everyone when there's lower incarceration rates, higher volunteer rates, higher taxes, et cetera, or people paying taxes with revenue and that it's a common good and that we are really, but that common good can come if you come to Vanderbilt, it can come if you go to UT Austin, right. um, et cetera. And so really trying to get away from this, there's only 30 schools you can go to. Well, and again, the volatility of, the, of, the volatili volatility of today's complex global society has everyone so worried about finding traction, finding that job, Finding the right. finding the economically viable uh, solution to a life of meaning and purpose, that the brand of the college still carries great cachet. It right? does, and I would agree with that. And I would just use me as an example. I graduated with my PhD from the University of Utah. It's a great state flagship institution. Yep. It's not in the top twenty. First place you work. Thirty, yeah, yep. thirty, forty, and I don't think I've done so bad. Yeah, you're, um, you're doing but fine. The, so right? the point is, is really trying to look. But I'm going to ask that also. Parents need to own some of this. No question. We need the ability for the parent. It's not the students get caught in the middle. Yeah, and Doug, independent schools need to own it. Yeah. You know, we throw out our college placement lists. We throw out our AP scores. Right. We throw out our standardized test scores as uh, as default heuristics to suggest our, our worth and value, which by default tells our kids how you score on those metrics is whether you're successful or not. Right. right? So, so Parrish, believe me, from how, what we call our college counseling office to how we message around what it means to be successful um, is, is working as hard as we can to be countercultural. I'm glad to, you know, mm -hmm. that your thoughts are that higher ed needs to hold its yeah. uh, peace. And parents, the reason I'm having you tell us that is that we want them to understand there are a wealth of fantastic Opportunities for higher education uh, that are that are out there beyond the uh, less than twenty percent of the colleges nationally that right. take fewer than fifty percent of the applicants. Right. The vast majority take more than fifty percent of their applicants. Of course, right. So you just need to you need to look uh, broadly. Yeah. As robust as Vanderbilt's program is, there are just great places there, that you it, can look. There at. are, and so I think one thing I would also say to your parents of in taking responsibility of working with their son or daughter and helping them think about many choices, many opportunities, and really being worried about the welfare of what will be a good fit for them, not for the parent. Now the parent, it's a, I always say, it's a student decision, but it's a family discussion, no yep. question. And a couple of things I might suggest to your parents that will take this anxiety down a little, 
here are a couple of things, and every Dean's Night I do, I say this to when I have just the parents. Um, I say, when your son or daughter's friends come over, do not say, what was your score on your SAT or ACT? Do not say, tell me the five schools that you're applying to. Um, what you need to say is, because you want to be interested, say something like, how's your search going? Mm -hmm. And let them own the discussion. Mm -hmm. And then they tell you, and then I would tell the students in the same breath, if you're going to apply to Harvard or Stanford or Vanderbilt, you don't need to tell everyone where you're applying mm -hmm. because this pressure then, if you don't get into Vanderbilt but you get into a school that is superb, yep. then it's kind of like, oh, but they didn't get felled. Yep. You know, and we need to be less intrusive yep. and let a student own the discussion the other thing I say to parents that really get hyped up on this is plan a time once a week that I'm making this up on Sundays from 2 to 5 is when we're going to talk about college. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about dates and deadlines and things coming up and then do not have it a part of the discussion mm -hmm. rest of the week right. because it's too much. Yep. And 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 you know and students are students and they're even really really smart and gifted students. They'll They'll, they, they're just high school kids and they'll get certain things done and the anxiety of just have you have you started your essay you know I know we need to work with our students and our children but by even being too interested can create mm -hmm. anxiety yeah. and so I really think parents need to um, own how they talk about the process yep. and then also make sure when somebody gets into Vanderbilt or Stanford and then they get into the um, local um, institution, whatever that may flagship, be. Sure. That, well, and even not the flagship, just local the regional. Local regional. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That we as parents are as, as excited Absolutely. about this as we are here because all those students are going to be better off for experiencing what they're going to experience. And we need to celebrate and make sure that we're not just celebrating those that are going to the top 15 yep. or 20, but those that are going to the top 500 That's right. or 1,000, and that it becomes part of your advancing to higher ed, that's the celebration. Yeah, amen to that. I, I think your wisdom is terrific for our parents, and I couldn't concur more with that mm -hmm. latter point. It's one that we, we really try to embrace at Parish. So I'd like to maybe close with another place that you have a perch mm -hmm. that's unique as chair of the college mm -hmm. board. College board is essentially, as I said, the umbrella uh, organization right. that oversees SAT, ACT, and, and AP. So as, as we talked about some of the features of this Vanderbilt learning that is we think are so important, transdisciplinary, project orientation, connected to community, learning inside and outside of class, uh, how, how do you, how do you, um, how, how do you I guess, uh, align that with the uh, standardized test element Mm -hmm. which is by definition standardized right and really in the AP example uh, prevail upon instructors to not go deep but to go fast and go broad mm -hmm. to get enough cover to perform well in the test and that for the learner really put a, um, a kind of a, an emphasis on those uh, on those uh, test scores at the end even as in the last de generation colleges have really stopped taking APs in many instances as, oh, a, as a credit, right? By far the large still do. You're, right, they do. But yeah. then, I mean, you're, you've got to go at a five or four, like the notion oh, of three, yes. like taking those for credits, yes. right, or, or have really diminished. So like, how do you reconcile a, a vision for an evolving 
perspective on what teaching and learning should feel like with these standardized tests? Because it's something I struggle with as an educator myself. I think there's a couple of things, and I can come back to the admissions point in a moment. Yeah. But just broadly speaking, and just for for clarification for your readers or your listeners, Mm -hmm. I just finished my term as the Ah, chair. Um, And so I was chair for four years. Normally you're chair for two, and I was reelected for a second term. Um, only the second one since 1900. But, oh but the point is, so I was involved for four years as the chair, and now I sit on the executive committee and a, and a trustee still, but I'm what's called the past chair for two more years. But I, how I reconcile this is a couple of ways. That, first of all, when we look at the AP curriculum and we look at the resources for low-income schools and schools without a lot of resource, the education that comes with helping teach the teacher is some of the best professional development um, that schools will get. Mm -hmm. So I look at that piece. Mm -hmm. I look at the AP piece that it is um, rigorous. It's standardized with the the AP audit so that we know when an institution looks at school A, B, or C, it's the same, we get a sense. Mm -hmm. So, and also there's a fairness component Mm -hmm. Um, the other piece is, I think, and we think about in today's world, um, that with the development of the AP capstone, mm-hmm. and that's much more where you're bringing uh, multiple, there's the content, mm-hmm. and then the capstone where you're bringing multiple disciplines and that together. I think the College Board's learning this too mm-hmm. as we move. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the National Forum that was held in Dallas mm-hmm. this year um, in October, end of October, David Coleman, who is the mm-hmm. current president, right of the College Board in his major address in front of thousands of educators and admissions folks to get to your point about this anxiety, stood up and it was reprinted in the New York Times if you want to find it for your um, teacher and you can see his video or his YouTube. Mm -hmm. He stood up and it threw out his talk but one of his main components was if you're a student and he said admissions, he's pointing to us, Um, why don't you say we're, if you're going to look at um, taking AP that you took for AP mm-hmm. I can't remember the number he said mm-hmm. and you took that because you wanted to and that will help you with college if you take 10 we should not count that into any factoring anymore mm-hmm. because They've and that because this we've got to reduce this mm-hmm. level of stress. Mm-hmm. I gotta yeah. gotta take ten and yeah. twelve and right. get A's and or fives right. on the test. So he was really calling the admissions arena to task. Interesting, which I thought was really good. And that's the first fundamental time that I recall the College Board really moving in that direction, yeah. trying to say admissions officers, if you are saying if you take ten, you're better than if you take five. Right. What, they're, what they do say is that you should take the most competitive schedule your school offers, which means if a school offers 20 APs, what is intuited or heard is right. the more of them I take, the more challenging schedule I've taken at my school, right? And so I'm glad to hear, so then I read that when he did. I think that's important. And he's really trying to then, I think, say. Take it by passion. To the, yes. Take it to point of passion. And yeah. not just as another way. Bellwether of your. To, to do this to where you're, yeah. you're having no joy in learning. Exactly. Um, and so I think that, then the other thing I think with standardized testing and, and I know everyone has a different opinion on, um, and we just do the SAT, not the ACT. 
um, but the SAT and but if we look at a lot of the data as long as institutions are using that um, information in a holistic manner in a way of the context of where the student came from that um, I think standardized testing helps equalize for us on the admissions profession an ability to see um, if great inflation is happening. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, I just got the story, I haven't read it yet, what came out in the New York Times today. No, I haven't seen it. It was about a um, school, I don't think it was Texas, um, but where they've come out and admitted they've made up complete lies oh, I saw that about yes, all of their kids getting kids into the IVs. Right. Um, and, you know, it's horrific. Yeah. You know, but really um, stepping back and saying a test score whether high or low or whatever and wherever it fits is one of many variables mm -hmm. but it helps us with great inflation mm -hmm. it helps us go you know huh mm -hmm. d d d d d c c c c c wow 1550 i don't know if we right. want that 1550 right. because they're not taken so everyone thinks testing is only for the high yeah the high can hurt you yeah you know i mean there are hundreds not hundreds there are handfuls and handfuls and handfuls and handfuls of students that we have that are denied with perfect testing. Sure. Um, and then, you know, as I think also um, about testing, um, that's when you should, like I mentioned earlier, parents should never ask anyone what they got. Here is my belief, and I, and I, I cannot give you any data on this other than my 30 years of experience. Every parent adds 100 points to their child's testing. So you know they got a 1220, but that rounds to 1300. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so we inflate even in our vernacular yes. and what, or we allude, yes. it was higher. And I'm like, no, that's not what, yeah. you know, we were told. And so I see chuckle it. with that. Parents should see it as a data point and those yeah. schools are seeing it that way. And, and I think just circling back in conclusion on the AP test, you have plenty of score uh, schools that uh, do not have AP in oh. their program and send you uh, fantastic students. So we would look at students. AP, IB, um, A-levels and Cambridge, or we would look at, you know, more, not more, but at some portion of schools are moving to their own honors courses. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's important to us is to understand what the rigor is yep. as it relates to the, the curriculum. The program the school has developed. Yeah. Because, you know, and so, as yes, I was part, I'm part of the college board. I am, if a student if had honors courses, if a student had AP, if a student had IB, um, Cambridge, whatever, I am agnostic on the curriculum as long as we can understand the mm -hmm. rigor of it mm -hmm. and that we know what it is. Yeah. You yeah. know, and so it's not, there's not one size that fits all. Yeah. And I love your point is as transcripts will start to change evolve, yeah. and evolve and starting to looking at the credentialing and the badging and all those other things, higher ed's going to have to follow mm -hmm. and understand that. So biggest thing that Parrish can do is just make sure in your profile or mm -hmm. your transcript, Very we know what you're telling Absolutely. us. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, you know, because... You know, everybody thinks everybody already has just transcripts that are A, B, C, D. No, mm -hmm. we have transcripts that are numerical, that are check, check plus, check minus. Right, qualitative yeah. write-ups, the, the whole thing. You so. Know, and so we just need to know how to interpret yeah. that. 
Well, I feel like I've been a student in your uh, one of your one of your higher education courses. Uh, You're actually know. a professor here too, <laughs> yes. uh, and we could go all afternoon. But you've been so gracious with your time. Thanks for uh, learning a little bit more about Parish, mm-hmm. and thanks for engaging our community uh, in just a deeper, more nuanced understanding of what the realities are on college campuses today relative to teaching and learning and to the admissions process. It's been really valuable. Thank you so you much. Bet. And I would just say thank you. And here's why: we work the time you're taking to come mm-hmm. and visit us and it sounded like from our discussion earlier you're at Belmont mm-hmm. and that you've been to a lot of the schools mm-hmm. as you're out on your traveling or whatever. Absolutely. That is so important um, and it's important for your parents to understand mm-hmm. by you help doing that you're yes we're, we're understanding parish better yeah. but you know what you're also helping us understand mm-hmm. where are high schoolers and where and so we don't get too separated absolutely so I really appreciate you yeah. taking the time and the resources to do that and come here and be with us yeah it's been a pleasure these are beautiful campuses with amazing programs uh, and uh, you know I think uh, sometimes uh, our, our world of higher ed is seen as stogy and uh, yes. unaspiring for change and the more I get to spend time with folks like yourself I'm reassured that though it's not quick and it's not going to happen in, in, in uh, overnight. Um, these these colleges and universities are trying hard to light their program forward to a, a rapidly changing world. So it's helpful Good. for me as a point of education. So All right. Great well, to be thank with you. you. Thank nice you so to much. Be with you. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes with educational leaders, innovators, and members of the parish community. In the meantime. Thank you for listening to the From My Angle podcast.